Good morning, Dungeness Community Church. Britt Hemphill, Children and Family Ministries pastor with you this morning. Great to be with you as Pastor Tim is away this weekend. And um, really excited to be able to talk to you this morning about something near and dear to my heart. You may recall, if you go back long enough with the church, to know three years ago is when I was hired for this position. And um, I was an older guy coming in to do a ministry uh, that was really revolving around children. And my first opportunity to share after I joined the church was about three months in. And I had a Sunday morning, and that morning I cast the vision for why children matter to God, to the local church, to all of us. Um, and it was an opportunity to say, I'm a champion for kids. And that's how I'm going to step into this ministry right now. Uh, and I will tell you this morning that you're, you don't ever age out for being able to be a champion for kids. Certainly that is still on my heart every day as I think about families and kids in our church and around the world. So it's a privilege to be able to talk to you this morning about children. Um, and we're gonna talk big picture and then we're gonna bring it down to DCC at the end. And uh, I hope that you're inspired and reminded and given an opportunity to just uh, think on these small people, these little people who God speaks very, very highly about as we go. So a brief consideration of children as the world's largest people group. In many ways, we can think about them in that way. And you might be surprised by this title, The Other Great Commission. So let's get into it and talk about that. So let's start with The Great Commission, which is very well known. I trust that it's one that you are familiar with. Go Therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, 19, it goes on to tell how we do that. Uh, this is a bedrock verse for the gospel over the, down the ages, given to, uh, to a big group of people by Jesus before his ascension. And it really is the way that the church was gonna grow, the way the gospel was going to uh, go, and um, making disciples is at the heart of it. So no question about that. It's the foundation for mission today. It's been the foundation for the local church from the beginning. And uh, it is our, um, our anchor as the Great Commission. But that's not what I'm talking about this morning. So let me go to this psalm and consider these words that were written by David. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. That's Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2. And the language here speaks to praise from children and infants uh, in the language of warfare and battle. Something about children and infants creates uh, a, a, an entry point against the enemy as a stronghold. And so it, it should awaken us to this idea that there's something about children as we think about them that God values in terms of their praise and the way they engage in the things that go on uh, around us in terms of the battle, the gospel, uh, and in many ways they should capture our hearts in how we think about that. We're gonna talk about that today. So you may be wondering, what is the other great commission? Well, here is what it is. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. And this is both uh, a command that the children would come to him, Jesus, and a caution, do not hinder them. 
and really as a bedrock commission for what I do and how I see God working around the world, uh, this is where I, I land on this other great commission. Now, I want to give you the context. So here it is from Luke 18, 16 to 17. Now, they were bringing infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples were not being mean-spirited here. They were trying to protect Jesus' time and ministry. He was a super busy guy for obvious reasons, and so they were trying to run interference. But when he saw them uh, trying to keep away the children, he actually pulled them aside and said these amazing words, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. I'm sure the disciples were stunned, thinking, wait a minute, why would children be a, a, so important to you? But nonetheless, he took the time to value them in that way and to dignify them in that way. And then he said this, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And those are stunning words, okay? The idea that the kingdom of God belongs to children. And we'll need to wrestle with that a little bit today as we go on through. But for now, I'll give you the context. That's where I pull this other great commission from. And now we're going to talk a little bit about ways that people have valued them. And then we're going to get to how Jesus values children and then go from there into unpacking this more in terms of the world and then for the church itself. So I'm an Oswald Chambers fan. His life and ministry and journey informed mine uh, in the early years of my faith journey. He remains a hero of the faith to me. And one of the things I would find out as I learned more about his life was his amazing love and care and attention for children. And this from a book written on him. Oswald's relationship with children is one of the most revealing aspects of his character. In a day when society believed they were to be seen and not heard, he listened to them and gave them a place of honor. Had he wished to be alone and undisturbed to prepare his messages, his host families would have made sure the children never bothered him. Instead, he sought them out. From the book Oswald Chambers Abandoned to God. And I love that idea that this man who has had such a great influence down through many, many decades now, through My Utmost for His Highest and many, many books, he devoted time to kids in the midst of his crazy, busy schedule. And I love learning about that in my life and in thinking about that now in my role in ministry. Someone else who has helped me to kind of uh, think differently about kids is G.K. Chesterton. And he said this, fairy tales do not tell children the dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children the dragons can be killed. And this speaks to imagination and the way kids are wired in a unique way. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. He also said this, for children are innocent and love justice, while most of us are wicked and naturally prefer mercy. And I love that idea of out of the innocence of children, they do love justice. From where they are in their little lives, uh, justice makes sense to them. And we'll kind of think about this as we continue on, but something happens to us as we get older and be, we begin to reshape the way we think about a lot of things and certainly change uh, the way we view the world as kids 
to how we view them as adults, right? So Chesterton also said this, because children have a bounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we, from orthodoxy. And I love the heart of Chesterton for children, how they see the world, how they understand the gospel, and uh, with imagination, and the mystery of even creation. And I love the fact that he wrote uh, quite a bit about that, actually. That meant a lot to me. But our ultimate source, as we think about this, is, of course, Jesus. So we're going to spend a little bit of time now talking about Jesus on the subject of children. So the context here is his response to the disciples' question of who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And here is how he responded to the question. He called a little child to him, placed the child among them, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Again, stunning words from Jesus. In the midst of the, the disciples and their journey with Jesus and all they were learning and wrestling with, in order to clarify this question, he puts a child in the center of them and then challenges them, calls them out to become like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, the incredible invitation of welcome a child in my name and you welcome me. And I've been thinking about this a little bit, especially the part about unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It, again, is a stunning statement. And I immediately thought about the series that Pastor Tim has been taking us through, Live Like Mountain Folk. And I revisited the early passage of the Sermon on the Mount. And there were a couple of verses there that connected to this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And I, so I wanted to give those to you to kind of allow you to think about those in the context of children. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so that sounds to me like poor in spirit is something that children live in that reality. Because he speaks about them as a context for for entering the kingdom of heaven. So humility, poor in spirit, is how kids are. Not how they learn to be, they simply are that way. And then another one is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's verse 10, Matthew 5. And uh, this one I could unpack, uh, spend quite a bit of time unpacking, um, but the reality is uh, one of the the, the things that is true about kids everywhere is that they, they have no voice like adults have. They are at the mercy of adults. And when we think about persecution and the hard things that go on in the world, uh, none of us are ignorant of the idea that often it involves children. 
as the ones who receive um, the brunt of what adults uh, bring into the world, into, into the hard spaces of the world. And, um, you know, I was just thinking in the 30 minutes or so I'm going to be talking, if we could measure the, the difficult, hard, terrible things that will be inflicted on kids around the world in just 30 minutes, the depths of that we could not wrap our minds around. So there is an element of where children experience persecution. Often it has nothing to do with their things that are in their control. And it talks about for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I think it's important for us to understand that when Jesus spoke about this in terms of kids, he had some things in his mind that he unpacked for adults as well as kids in the Sermon on the Mount. So you can kind of think about that and consider what that might look like. And then again, on the subject of children, the Father revealed in the Son, the idea of the incarnation, God becoming flesh. And he said, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children, Matthew eleven twenty-five. 25. This is before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So he is speaking about a time when children could somehow connect to the idea that God had, had come to dwell among us beyond the wise and learned, which of course speaks to adults. And he tells us here that kids could somehow connect with this. So there's something mysterious and powerful about that, certainly something that we want to think about as we talk about kids this morning. If you're chosen fans, I don't know if you watch the series at all, but um, it's a pretty extraordinary thing that they're doing. And in season one, episode number three, uh, it's called Jesus Loves the Little Children. If I were to give you a homework assignment this morning, I would tell you, uh, if you haven't seen it, watch it. If you can watch it with kids, all the better. It um, just presents this idea of the amazing connection between children and Jesus, that he even sought them out. He talked to them about important things. He was blessed by the ways that they were thinking about the things of God. Um, it's about a 40-minute show, but uh, totally good for all kids, certainly for all adults. And I love how it provokes our thinking about um, how Jesus thought about children and how when he was among people, he sought out children and no reason to think that they didn't seek out him as well understanding something about this amazing life that had come to dwell among us. So that's kind of our background now as we think about today and the things that we're going to look at. I had this amazing experience eight weeks ago or so. I was on a little field trip with my granddaughter Lily, uh, two, now three, but late twos, and we were on the railroad bridge uh, walk. We had been on the trail, then we took a little side trail uh, always a fun thing for me because I'm just kind of trailing along and Lily is fully engaged in the fun things that are going on as we're walking. Ants and she's seeing bees, she's hearing birds sing, she's looking at flowers and all the fun little things, right? A two-year-old heart would be drawn to and I'm just tagging along enjoying the ride. And then she stopped and she turned to me and she said, Papa, I want the mountains to wake up. Now, I was stunned. Okay, this, it, I was not ready for this. I didn't know where it came from. And my first thought 
was, well, Lily, mountains don't really sleep or wake up. They're the mountains. And, and to myself, I thought that. What I said to her was, you know, Lily, I want the mountains to wake up too, by the grace of God. <laughs> That's what I said to her. And then I managed to give a follow-up to that and say, you know, I wonder what it looks like when the mountains wake up. We had this little exchange. She immediately turned back to the trail, started doing her other things. I am following along trying to understand what has just happened from my little two-year-old granddaughter in asking the question and what was on her mind and in her heart. Uh, I didn't just forget about it. it. To me, it was this moment of interacting with something that was mysterious and important. And it was only later as I thought about, well, how would I approach that? You know, the, how would I speak to her about her question and what that would look like? That God just drew me into the Psalms and made me wonder about this idea of her heart and mind being in a place where when, for example, she would see this in Psalm 114.4, the mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs, she would go, Papa, that, that's what I'm talking about. That's, that's what I was wondering about. Or here in Psalm 98.8, let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy. And the idea that we as adults would go, well, it's poetic language and it means something, you know, like, I don't know what we would say, but we would couch it in adult thinking. And I think Lily had on her mind something very different. And uh, I think it's important for us to realize that God speaks about this for kids in terms of their, their ability to grasp things that we, the wise and learned, might not be thinking about as clearly as we would were we children. I saw this a couple days ago. This article came to me in The Economist titled, I'm a bad parent because I've forgotten my own childhood, how to reconnect with your inner 10-year-old. I just got a kick out of the title. I read the article and one of the quotes was this, I'm haunted by a sense that my life would be richer, more authentic somehow if I could more easily access a felt connection with my childhood. I often think that I'd be a better parent too. I would surely be a more empathetic and understanding parent to my children if I were on more intimate terms with myself at their ages. I would be a more creative and instinctive presence in their lives. So Mark O'Connell wrote this piece and I love those words, a more creative and instinctive presence in their lives. I think for me as an adult, I tend to dwell in the world of adult thinking and children do not do that. They are in a space where uh, creative, instinctive responding to the things of God, I think they're wired to do. And so again, just kind of creating this dichotomy between the adults and kids and things for us to think about this morning. All right, so finally, we're gonna get into the global stuff. I wanna mention this. Okay, 414 window is something I talk about often. Uh, it's a powerful idea, it's actually not an idea, but it's rooted in this, okay? The fact that 85% of those who make a decision to follow Jesus do so between the ages of four and 14. There is something about those ages where the heart of a child growing into a, a young, uh, an older child is tender and sensitive to the things of the gospel. Uh, this may be your story. Of course, obviously, it's not everyone's story. My story is not this story. I was 24. But I do know that when I've asked this question before at the church, the hands have gone up to reflect this statistic. And I think we would, um, 
we would be wise to pay attention to it, understanding that it means something about the way that we're wired as we grow, something to the gospel, uh, being sensitive to the gospel, um, and having uh, a posture that is in a place to respond um, to the invitation of Jesus. And I think kids are in that place. There's a reason for it. Um, and it doesn't mean that, you know, 15-year-olds and older do not respond. They do. But the majority respond during these ages. So I'm thinking about that all the time in my ministry, but especially now as we begin to talk about kind of the snapshot of the world's biggest people group. And so we're going to get into that now. So I'm going to give you some new global realities. I want you to think about these in the context of children. All right, that's going to be our focus. But the stats themselves are going to maybe uh, catch you by surprise in terms of our world today. So let's begin with this. Some estimate that 70% of the world's Bible-believing Christians, as opposed to nominal or cultural Christians, now live in the majority world or global south. If you're not familiar with those terms, majority world or global south, very commonly used now in the world of missions and missionaries. Um, but there's a way to show it to you, and it's with this map. And as you look at the map, uh, the red is the global south. Okay, so you'll notice North America, Europe, and really northern uh, Russia uh, is the blue, and everywhere else is the red, the global south. Okay, Australia sneaks in there. There's a reason for that. And the reason is that the one defining characteristic between the global north and the global south is economics. All right. The rich north and the poor south. So the central gravity of the gospel now is in the global south. Most of what God is doing is there simply because of the numbers. And yet it's defined by this statistic, which is that uh, it is economically a very poor area of the world. All right. So I want you to keep that in mind. Here's another map you can see from National Geographic, uh, you'll notice the pinks and blues. Those are the wealthy areas. Certainly, you look in the U.S., you'll see that the blue is the highest end. Um, and by the way, the highest end would be $14,000 a year and higher. Um, and then it goes down from there. The yellow areas are under $1,000 a year or less. So we're talking $1 to $3 per day for people living in those areas. And you see Africa is there, India is there, you see Asia, uh, and also a little bit of the Middle East. Okay, so in the Global South, those are areas where poverty is particularly powerful. All right? So here's another way to see that, a fascinating way to see it, actually. This is from a group called worldmapper.org. I use these maps whenever I'm talking about kids and mission and. Uh, this is wealth year 2015, and the way they put these maps together is that they reflect a, uh, a statistic, in this case wealth, by the size of the country. So the bigger the country, the more wealth they will have. And we could spend some time on this, but a couple of things probably jump out to you. One is that Africa has almost disappeared. That is a huge thing, all right? in terms of the, the impact on kids. And another thing that you'll notice, it's a little bit deceptive. India looks pretty big, China looks pretty good, but the wealth distribution there is such that when you go back to the National Geographic, they are countries where poverty is the main defining factor for most families. 
So this is a little bit deceptive. Meanwhile, you look at Europe, you look at the US, uh, we look really good here, and much of the rest of the world, uh, especially the global south, does not. A couple of other things I want you to be aware of. Urbanization. So by the year 2050, Lagos, Nigeria will be the biggest city in the world. If I would have asked you to guess what's the biggest city going to be in 2050, I bet you wouldn't have picked Lagos, Nigeria. Six and a quarter billion people will be in cities. Nine of the top 10 most populated cities will be in the global south. So you can take all the big cities of the US off the map. They will not be in the top 10. And then 40% of Africa's people will live in slums, including the children. All right, these are enormous statistics in the next 30 years. They are going to unfold. A few other things. Half of the world's population is under the age of 30. It's just one of the things that we don't experience, but that is the way it is these days. China has more teenagers than the U.S. has people. Almost 40% of India is under the age of 18. 70% of Africa is under the age of 25. Almost 50% is under the age of 15. So in the global south, they are young, extremely young. And there's some implications in that for kids. So let's talk about that. Here's the world population in 2050. Again, world mapper doing this. The bigger the size of the country, the more it reflects the world population and pretty dramatic things going on there. You can see that North America shrunken, Europe shrunken, Africa, the Middle East, Asia, India, and into China are huge, okay? So that's where the population is going. In terms of what I'm talking about today, this is what I want you to notice, okay? In 2015, here is where the children from birth to four years old were. And it's a pretty profound picture of where the children are in the world. The global south is where they're at. You can see China, India, Asia, the Middle East, and Africa is where the kids are out. Now, it's interesting that we're six years past that. So these kids now are anywhere from six to 10 years old, which puts them squarely in the 414 window. And I often ask myself, what's going on in their world to connect them to the gospel? And how can we pay attention to that? Five to 14 year olds, again, six years old, right? So these are 11 to 20 year olds now. Again, notice that uh, <laughs> North America and Europe have shrunk. The populations are in the global south, Africa, Asia, Middle East. And these are older kids. Some are still in the window, but some are into young adulthood. And I wonder what their worlds are like as they are not hearing about the gospel, the great invitation to come to me. And um, these are things that I think it's worth our attention asking the question. You should know that my journey in all of this has been shaped personally by going to places like Zimbabwe, Zambia, uh, Kenya, Nepal, India, seeing the children there, seeing the leaders leaning into kids in their communities as the future for not only today, but the true future, pouring into them, investing into them, uh, discipling them, because they know in those contexts, if the children are not given the opportunity to lead, the country is in big trouble. So as I speak to you about this, it's from a very personal standpoint. And I realize that God has shaped my journey strongly 
through this to be able to think about kids here at DCC by understanding kind of what's going on in the world and hopefully uh, bringing a heart for our kids in a more powerful way because of that. All right, so that's the global picture. What about implications for DCC? A couple of things that I wanna talk to you about. First of all, serving our kids. How does all this connect as we think about how Jesus spoke about children, about uh, the realities of the gospel, about um, how we need to pay attention to them? I love this quote from Henrietta Mears. The winning of a child to Christ is our most important task today. When we save a child, we not only save a soul, but we gain a life. Children have the right to demand your best leaders, your best materials, your best facilities. And I really believe that. I believe as a church, this is what is asked of us because of the value that children um, offer to us as a church, certainly to God in how he sees them. And so I think serving them with our best people, our best resources, our best facilities is um, something that we should not only say, but we should do as to the best ability that we have anyway. So a couple of ways that that informs kind of what I think about from my ministry standpoint. You know, in our view, we talk about programs, ways that serve kids through programs. And I think programs are great, but I'm mindful that a program uh, from God's perspective is part of the mission. It is let the children come to me and don't hinder them. And so I think the mission is what is center for us, not the program. Numbers, I love numbers. I think it's great when we have numbers, but I'm always mindful that it's about the one. And on any, any given Sunday, for example, we may have one child here who has never heard the gospel or maybe has heard something, but it's not been clear. And in that one hour, we might have an opportunity for them, just that one, to suddenly wake up to the great invitation of Jesus to follow him. And so I'm always thinking about the one, again, bring on the numbers, but I think in God's perspective, uh, it is about the one, and so we think about that. Sunday school is a great thing. It's one of our solid things that we do. Not all children love the idea of school, but I think the way our leaders and helpers bring it is a way that the gospel is in play, um, but it really is a measure of discipleship. And for that one 168th of a week, that one hour, we have an opportunity to bring to them some things that speak about the Great Commission as part of the other Great Commission. Activity is about relationship. Uh, it's not just doing stuff to keep them busy, but opportunities for relationships to play out. Certainly filling slots is not what it's about when it's serving kids. It's fulfilling a calling. I really believe the people that serve kids, they're doing it out of a heart that God would have them do that in order to incarnate the gospel. So it's more than filling slots. And finally, it is definitely not just kids because kids are change agents. Uh, many of you may know stories. I certainly know that I do. I know Pastor Tim does of children coming to Jesus and then that flowing into the lives of adults, parents, extended family, who then became followers themselves. So kids are change agents. The way that they think about the gospel, the way they talk about it, they have no guile when it comes to talking about the gospel with older people. And so through them, God can change the world. He does it through families and communities, even nations. I think children can be used for that. The other great commission implication is intergenerational worship. And uh, we'll wrap up with this, but you know, we have been talking a lot about this lately, and I've been 
uh, proposing this idea that there are ways that we disciple kids when we're together on a Sunday morning. And there are three of them, the preaching of God's word, the singing of God's people, and the sharing of the Lord's Supper and baptism. When children are around those things, it offers a picture of the gospel to them, some of the things that gospel followers do. And so we may not think much about it, uh, about it but children are absorbing some things that are important for them as they think about the big questions of Jesus and God as they grow up. What it is not, as we think about intergenerational worship, it's not just putting kids in the sanctuary. That is not our goal. It is not old people pretending to be kids or young people trying to act old. It is not a disruption and it is not a new fad. And you may notice kids in our services on Sunday, if you're coming to the building, we give them these activity clipboards to give them something to do while church is going on. But make no mistake, while they're doing those activity clipboards, they are hearing things that are going on. They're paying attention to things beyond their clipboard. And through that, they are being exposed to what we do in corporate worship that are important. It's, it's certainly not a disruption. It may mean that kids are around, it's a little more noisy. But for most of the world, this is how they worship. And the last one, it's not a, a new fad. It was in the 20th century that we began to develop things that would pull kids out from church services. And we do that, we do it with good intentions, we do it with great material and people and resources, but it's not new for millennia, the church worship together as families. So what we're trying to do, especially on our communion Sundays, is just have an opportunity for us to worship together so that kids have a, a chance to intergenerationally come together with the adults. So it's ministry that focuses on connecting multiple generations in faith-forming relationships, cultivated through times of corporate worship, intentional discipleship, and ongoing mentoring. The church provides the corporate worship, maybe some discipleship and mentoring. Parents are at the center of that. Uh, grandparents have a big role to play as well but all of it blending us together so that we're together the body of Christ. It creates a space for all generations, old and young and in between, to worship together, and it expresses a desire to help kids and youth and adults and elderly be a part of the church as it is. That is the local church. Involvement in all church or intergenerational worship during high school is more consistently linked with mature faith in both high school and college than any other form of church participation. We wouldn't necessarily think about that. We would think about it's great programs or great opportunities for high school kids to be together and do their own thing. But Fuller Youth Institute found that actually there's some important connections that are made for them when they're together in the room with the adults and the kids and so it kind of reinforces this, uh, the value of intergenerational worship, at times anyway. So, let the DCC children come to me and do not hinder them. This is uh, a mandate that I think really defines my ministry. I would love to have you think about it yourself in terms of what your role might be in allowing that to happen through us as a local church. What does it look like for you to be involved in letting children come to Jesus and not getting in the way of that happening. I'm gonna close with this amazing quote from Jesus, a presentation of the king. If you look in your Bible, it'll have a heading like that, or uh, it might be the triumphal entry. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, 
and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And what Jesus did there was quote Psalm 8-2, where we began at the beginning of this message. The words that David wrote, Jesus referred to in order to speak to the scribes and Pharisees and the adults who were around, challenging the value of children, the dignity of children, their ability to understand what was happening. And instead, he referred them back to Psalm 8 written by David. A great reminder for us that even toward the very end, children were on the mind of Jesus. And if he is the one we imitate, if he is the one we follow, then they should be on our minds too. Let the children come to him and do not hinder them. Amen.